Welcome. Thank you for listening to Spiritual Living with author and teacher Francois Feinberg. May the message you're about to hear earnestly touch your heart, and may it encourage you in your ongoing love of God the Father, your enjoyment of the Lord Jesus Christ, and your fellowship in both the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ. If you want to be a spiritual man or a spiritual woman that lives out the normal Christian life as God intended it in his New Testament economy, then you will have to learn this spiritual principle or dynamic that is called kenosis. It is a Greek word that means simply to be emptied. Think of a cup of water. There's the cup and it's filled with water. But when you pour out the water, that cup undergoes kenosis. The cup forever remains, but what's within the cup is being poured out. And that's the principle of kenosis. In a way, God wants to deal with his man and woman to empty them of what they are grasping for and what their false identities and securities might be. God does not empty you of your humanity. You forever will stay humanity until the Lord resurrects you and transfigures you in due time. But you will forever stay human and you will have the feelings and the emotions and the needs and tendencies of humanity. God doesn't really have an issue with your humanity. It's what's with inside the cup or the dish, if you will, that God has a problem with. And the spiritual life is, is a life of being emptied of that ego within, that anxiousness, that anxiety, that stress maybe, that concern, that grasping, that pride within the cup. That's what God wants to pour out of you and replace it instead with his life-giving supply, which is his nature, his spirit, his water, drink, his bread, his food. Now, Christ showed us what a life of kenosis is like. God incarnated himself, and he became a human. And he emptied himself of his divine capability he did not empty himself of his divine nature. Christ was very much God manifested in the flesh. But from the Gospels, we don't see Christ pompous, egotistical, self-centric, and just snapping his fingers here and there and making things happen. Christ did not just levitate and have big halos around his head. He was very much a common, ordinary Jewish man. And as he lived a life of emptying and not clutching and grasping and holding on, constantly God would then replenish him. He would empty, God would fill. And in Christ, we see this beautiful dynamic of the spiritual life of emptying and filling. And in this message, I want to encourage you to reconsider the things that you are holding on to. Oh, there are so many. 
But I uh, want to use the example a little bit of Satan in Isaiah chapter 14, how he clutched and yet lost. And I want to go to Genesis chapter 4 and show that as a result of the fall, some of the things that we as humans now clutch and grasp and hold on to, and those are the very things that will often make us forfeit the presence of God, the power of God, and the filling of God. Beloved, you cannot mature in the Christian life, in the spiritual life, if kenosis is not a real, vibrant, dynamic present within your life. I pray that as you constantly unload yourself, you would experience the constant infilling of the Holy Spirit. Kenosis is the heart of God for Christ in his humanity, and it is still the heart of God for you and I who seek to live out the spiritual life, likewise in our humanity. It's the principle of kenosis, and you're going to find this word in the book of Philippians. However, the principle of kenosis, the spiritual dynamic of kenosis, you will find really throughout the entire biblical story. I want to first bring you to Philippians chapter 2, read a couple of verses, and then we will sort of go through the whole Bible again and um, we'll stand still, particularly in Matthew's gospel. And I'll show you how if the Holy Spirit can work this principle into your life with your cooperation, and if this principle can be established and matured and stabilized into your life and you live from this perspective, then you will truly live in the kingdom of God. If this principle of kenosis is not established in your life and it's not solid and it's not the bedrock on which you walk with God, you will have no spiritual life with God. No matter how much we entertain you, how much we teach you, train you, uh, impress you, wow you, woo you, none of it will stick to your bones if you're not standing on this principle. This is the principle of God's working with every man. If we back up just a little bit to last week, we talked very generically last week, it was sort of just an introduction, that God has an economy and a will and a desire and a big purpose and He's got wisdom behind it. And what is it? To facilitate into this natural realm a testimony, uh, an image a likeness. And so this created realm somehow became decadent. We believe that was through the ousting of uh, Satan and his cohorts from the heavenlies. But be it as it may, God put a man into this realm, particularly into this earth, so that there could be an expression of God in this earth. That's God's economy. 
But now that he has his man, there is a principle at work within this man. And it's the principle of kenosis. And the person that showed us kenosis is our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2. Let's just start in verse 1 to read a little bit and pick up on the context. If there is therefore any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of spirit, and if there is any tender heartedness and compassion towards one another, then make my joy full. I want you to notice that word there in verse 1. In a way, be encouraging towards one another. Console one another. Have fellowship with one another. My Bible say in verse 1 there, be tender hearted towards one another and have compassion towards one another. So he's describing a couple of characteristics of the Christian life. Characteristics that are incongruent with worldliness. Worldly people, people of the flesh, are certainly not encouraging. They are sarcastic and they tear down. People of the flesh don't console and build up in love. They actually tear you down and find fault. He says here, pursue fellowship with one another in spirit. People of the flesh don't pursue fellowship. They pursue division. If there is tender-heartedness towards one another, people of the flesh are not tender-hearted. They are cynical, critical, fault-finding. So here are descriptions really of the spiritual community of Jesus. In verse 2 he says, make my joy full. That you think the same thing. Spiritual people, in a way that have crucified the flesh, they take on the mind of the Lord, and so they begin to think the same thing. They have the same love. They are joined in soul. My Bible say they are like-souled. They join with one mind, and their emotions begin to sort of partner together, and they're pushing in the same direction for the kingdom of God. And he says here, if you make my joy full in all of these things, think the same thing. Think on the one thing. So you can really see in here Paul's description of the normal Christian church life. It's a people who are locked in arms and they're plowing together in the kingdom of God. In verse 3 he says now, do nothing by way of selfish ambition. And you're going to see selfish ambition is really the, the fuel of the independent, flesh, carnal, natural man. He wants to live for himself. It is in contrast to verses 1 and 2 where he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, but rather be kind and loving and build and be tender. So you can see there, there's the Christian life here, the spiritual man that, that cares for the building up of the others. And then there's the, the carnal, fleshly man that is driven by selfish ambition. And then again, you're about to see, in contrast here, the life of Christ, who was completely other than a selfish, ambitious man. 
So he says, don't, don't be selfish and have this vainglorious grasping, this ambition. And uh, he says, do nothing by way of this selfish ambition nor by way of vainglory. There again is a description of the carnal man. He's always grasping. He's always hoping to, 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 to stomp on somebody to build himself up. And you're going to see how he contrasts that with the person of Christ in just a minute. He says in verse 3, In contrast, have lowliness of mind towards one another. In that low humility, consider one another more excellent than yourself. Not regarding each his own virtue. Notice the contrast again. But rather consider the virtues of others. So here then is a tension between the community of the Lord that are like-spirited, in fellowship, thinking the same thing. Have you met the body of Christ like that? Or have you met the body of Christ more in a way of grasping, competing, stomping? This is Paul's description of the body of Christ. And where does he get this description? He gets it from the life of Jesus himself. So we go on to verse 5 now. He's giving the greatest example of what a tender-hearted person is all about, what a servant is all about, a person that is lowly, a person who seeks to lift others up, a person who's not grasping and looking out for himself. And the greatest example he can come up with is the example of Jesus Christ himself. So look at verse 5, and if you can circle verse 5, this then is the, the, the hinge that introduces this, this next avenue, this next example that he wants us to go down. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So exactly the same way Christ thought about things, the same logic in him, the same reasoning in him should be in you. And he's going to give us a description of what was in the mind of Jesus. Look at verse 6. Talking about the Lord, he says, Who, although existing in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a treasure to be grasped. And you see the, the life of the Lord here is a life of relinquishing versus a life of grasping. And you see here in the foregoing verses, he says, don't grasp, but actually relinquish. Don't look out for me, but rather build up the body. And he uses this great example of Jesus himself, who was in the form of God. He was in the likeness of God, your Bible might even say. And when God incarnated into this earth, Jesus was not afraid to give up the form of God. When God spoke to his own son and said, Son, it's time to climb into time and to space. Jesus didn't go, Oh, but, but, but can I keep my power? Oh, can, can I keep my wisdom? Oh. He never had a hissy fit. By coming from heaven 
into earth, he humbled himself and he took off the form of God. And he took on the form of a Jewish man, a man with sweat, a man with just normal humanity. He didn't come just hovering all over this planet like you might expect God to hover. He came and identified himself fully with mankind in all of the weaknesses of mankind, the frailty of mankind, and even the capability to die. Guys, God don't die. So Jesus is clothed in this, he's God, but then he derobes, declothes himself, and he comes into man. And it's that aspect of taking off your, let's say, ego, your self, vainglorious grasping. That's what Paul is telling the Philippians. Get this off of you and be like Christ. Empty yourself. Humble yourself. So he goes on and describes you. Look, even though he was in the form of God, he did not consider staying equal with God something to hold on to. But here it is in verse 7. He actually emptied himself. That word emptied is our Greek word kenosis. And there is the key to, in a way, the incarnation. But there's the key, in a way, to the spiritual life. And Paul is basically imploring the Philippians, hey, you need to take on this mindset. What's the mindset? The mindset of being emptied versus the mindset of grasping. So he says, this Jesus emptied himself and he took the likeness of a slave. He took the form of a slave and he came in the appearance and in the likeness and the similitude of man. And then it says in verse 8, as if that was not enough. And being found in the fashion of a man, he further humbled himself. And he became obedient even unto death, that is the death on the cross. Stripping is kenosis. That stripping happened to God when God Almighty stripped Himself. That is, He took off His God capability, His God appearance. And He humbled Himself into this earth. But then when He got to this earth, He further humbled Himself. And he kept living this life of emptying. No wonder God kept filling this man. Because as he took off, God kept putting on. And he kept dying and God kept infusing more life into him. And he took off his own strength and own wisdom and capability. And God kept clothing this man with divine capability, so to speak. But in Christ, you see this spiritual principle called kenosis. Let's use a couple of examples quickly from the life of Christ. Track with me. Christ emptied himself and he becomes a man. But he gets birthed 
into a 15, maybe 16-year-old virgin little girl out of wetlock and loses the respect and the reputation of the community because she is with child. Um, and it, it's supposed that she had premarital uh, affairs with uh, Joseph. So it is an embarrassing, awkward situation right from the start. But what you have to read into it is humiliation. That little girl Mary and Joseph were absolutely humiliated. Then to add to that humiliation and misunderstanding and probably town gossip, Jesus gets birthed into a cave structure. We, you know, there was no room in the inn, but we believe um, in some kind of a cave structure where animals were kept, that's where the Lord was born. That cave in which he was born is, is, a, is a symbol of humility and humiliation and, and emptying. Then, who attends his birth? Shepherds. People, back in those days, with no credibility. No credibility. Uh, a shepherd was never allowed to testify in court. In fact, they were the lowest, the second lowest level of society in the Jewish culture. Uh, a woman, sorry to say, was the lowest level of credibility. Just slightly above a woman was a shepherd. But a shepherd was known as a, as a conniving thief, uh, a manipulator. You could never trust a shepherd. And it's shepherds that attend to the Lord's birth. And so when shepherds go out and tell everybody, hey, um, the Messiah was just born. How do you think people took that news? Yeah, with a little bit of laughter, of course. Totally discredited the, the situation. So talk about humiliation. Then Jesus goes and, you know, as the story goes, he lives in Nazareth. Nazareth was a, a village, we believe just a couple of dozen people, no more, that had absolutely zero reputation. Even when uh, it was said, can anything, when Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? There, there was no reputation there. Jesus goes and lives in a little town full of mockery. To make matters worse, he conducts his ministry in the Galilee. Galilee was known as the place where the stupid people live. That's kind of where the, the dumbos live, the illiterate people, the fishermen. <laughs> Jerusalem is where the sophisticated people live. And... Galilee, ah, that's where the no, that's where he goes and he makes his ministry. And you'll see all throughout his life, he continues to be emptied and makes himself of no reputation. Is everybody with me? That principle of kenosis was not just in his birth, it was in his life. Eventually he would say, you know what? The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I don't even have a home. At the time of his death, he had one cloak. That was all the possessions he had. He was not only birthed in humility, he lived a life of humility. And at the time of his death, he had only one cloak, and even that cloak was taken from him. He lived a life of emptying. Now that principle, kenosis, is diametrically opposed to the spirit of the flesh within each man. And that's why you and I cannot walk with God and have a vibrant, 
living relationship with God until humility is formed within you. This emptying is formed within you. There in the Garden of uh, Eden, there is Adam, made in the likeness of God. There is Adam with the image of God, clothed with the authority of God. There is Adam, blessed of God. And then comes Satan. Go to Genesis chapter 3 quickly. Here comes Satan. And he's going to cause this man to grasp for more. And in that grasping for more, in that grasping to lift yourself up, Adam will fall. Look at it quickly. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast or animal that the, the Lord God had made in the field. And he said to the woman, did, did God really say? Like, really? Verse 2, the woman says to the serpent of the fruit of the tree of the garden, we may... We may eat, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, uh, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. In verse 4, the serpent says to the woman, by the way, there's a big story here. In other legacy semesters, I pull this whole narrative apart and show you all the intricate workings in it. But for now, in verse 4, the serpent says to the woman, you won't die. Verse 5, for God knows that in the day that you eat of that particular tree, your eyes are going to be opened and you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. Yeah. And he's baiting this woman. And what he's basically saying to the woman is, God is holding out on you. You should grasp for a little bit more. Instead of the principle of kenosis, of emptying, Satan introduces the principle of Gain, grasp, pursue, fight, claw. Oh, by the way, you're not complete. God's playing games with you. He's holding out on you. And then now look how the woman bites into this temptation. Look here in verse 6. The woman sees now that this tree is good for food. Oh, she's like, man, this is a beautiful tree. She sees that this tree is good. It can benefit me. It says here, this tree is a delight to the eyes. <gasps> it strikes my emotional chord. I resonate with this tree. It says over here, wow, this tree can make me wiser than I currently am. These are all statements of grasping. Statements of coveting, statements of lust, statements of I am not enough. I am not complete. Maybe if I add this, maybe if I add that. And so here is the temptation. Look at the very first temptation. You're not enough. Reach for more. That's why the writer in Ecclesiastes would say, for all of your grasping, for all of your reaching, you are clutching really vanity. Which is, by, by the way, what they named their second-born son. 
The first was Cain and the second was Abel. Abel means vanity. By now the man and the woman discovered that, man, this grasping that we were after, this is actually vanity. But this is the temptation here. Can you all see with me? Turn quickly to Isaiah chapter 14. This principle is set up not only on earth as the first thing with man, but it was also set up in the heavenlies. If you come to Isaiah chapter 14, we have a little bit of an allegorical story depicting the fall of Satan. It's not a completed story. It's a story with just suggestion and innuendo regarding Satan. There's a big context here in Isaiah 14, but bottom line is we know that it's not just uh, the king of Tyre or the king of Babylon that are described here. It's actually Lucifer, Satan himself. I want you to notice here in this prophetic passage here, chapter 14, look at verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. In other words, Lucifer, son of the dawn. How you have been thrown down to the earth, you who made nations fall prostrate. Verse 13 gives us a little bit of a snapshot as to the reasoning within Lucifer that caused his expulsion from heaven. And I want you to carefully, if you have a pen, you've got to see this. You're going to see not an emptying principle, but a gaining principle, a, 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 a grasping principle. And that's, by the way, the first thing that he tempts the man and the woman with. Not an emptying, but a grasping. It already began in eternity past. I don't know personally when Satan fell out of the heavens. That is when he were, was evicted. But this is an aspect in a realm way in a time way before, you know, earth. But look at the motivation here. Verse 13. But you said in your heart. So it's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of motive here, okay? Notice. I will ascend. Does that sound like grasping for you? Yeah. Does that sound like climbing? Does that sound like roll up your sleeves and do something about it? Yeah, I will ascend. And notice the phrase, to heaven. That is, I'm going to make myself higher. I'm going to lift myself up. I'm going to exalt myself. And he says here, I will exalt myself above the stars of God. There's a context there besides the point. Notice the next statement. I will exalt my throne. That is, I'll exalt my dignity, my honor, my royalty, my kingship. I will lift myself up. That sounds like grasping versus emptying. Notice, I will sit upon the mountain of the assembly in the uttermost parts of the north. These are all pictures of self-exaltation. Look at verse 14. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. 
It's repetitive. I will. I will. Look at the, the latter part of verse 15, uh, 14. I will make myself like the Most High. This principle was already in place in Satan's motivation in eternity past. Then, because he exalts himself, God kicks him out. And that's when we believe Satan was hurled down to this earth and some kind of uh, chaotic judgment ensued that messed up this whole planet. That's another lesson for another day. But now we believe God then forms the man to be an anti-testimony to his enemy. But what caused Satan's expulsion? Grasping. Then he comes to this very man and woman that God created and he said, Oh man, why don't you just grasp? Why don't you just, God's holding out on you. And of course, the man and the woman bites into that. So beloved, pause for just a minute. You have the background? Here then is the tension through the entire biblical record again. There will be those men and women that are used of God. They will constantly experience a stripping. But those people who will be against God, they will constantly try to gain and do it their own way. Now, Satan grasped, he fell. Adam and Chuva, Adam and Eve, we say, they grasp and they fell. But now I want to show you in their grasping what they created. God, when He endowed the man, He endowed the man with image, dominion, and fruit bearing. But when man grasped and subsequently fell, in Genesis 4, we have a description of what man can create now because of his grasping. So go look at these uh, few things in Genesis 4 with me. Have I lost you? Okay. Satan grasped, he fell. Adam and Eve grasped, and they fell. And in Genesis 4, we actually have a description of... Uh, what man is capable of when he grasps. And here are a few things that are already describing what man is after, as opposed to the image of God, the dominion of God, and the fruit bearing of God. Let's pick up there in verse 16 just a little bit and let's read. It says that Cain went forth from the presence of the Lord... And he dwelt in the land of Nod. I want you to notice first there, when you grasp and you try to claw and you try to fight, particularly in the spiritual world, the first things that's going to happen, you're going to be driven away from the presence of God. Okay, we saw that with Satan in uh, Isaiah 14. He is clawing to be on the throne, to, 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 to stomp God down, to exalt himself. And as a result, he was cast away from the presence of God. So number one, when you, in a way, try to exalt yourself, lift yourself up, and it's about me, and, and it's my kingdom, and my will, and my way, and my glory, and my ego, the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to forfeit God's presence. 
Is everybody with me? Is everybody with me? So we would say, like, I just don't sense God's presence. Why is the Lord not with me? Uh, it's probably because you are not on the principle of emptying and lowering yourself so the river can run to you. You're probably like exalting yourself and like you're putting God on trial and you have this superior attitude with God instead of this humble, meek, tender attitude. That's why you probably forfeit the presence of God. So keep reading. Verse 17, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and she gave birth to Enoch. And here's what Enoch does. He builds a city. And he called the name of that city after his uh, son Enoch. In the cities is where we cluster together. And you'll see in the Tower of Babel, it's kind of like a city where we cluster together. And there's something that happens here when humans cluster together. It creates this thing we call culture. God gave Adam image, dominion, and fruit bearing. And now, in the grasping, these are the things that we're beginning to experience. Uh, we're void of the presence of God, and so now we flock together. I need you to complete me now. I need you to make me feel better. And so we create a culture, okay? So, no longer am I under the Lord. I am now under a culture. Okay, keep reading. It says here in uh, verse 19, for instance, it says that uh, Lamech took two wives for himself. The first uh, wife's name was Adah, and the name of uh, Lamech's uh, second wife was Zillah. Now look at verse 20. Adah, Lamech's uh, wife, gave birth to Jabal, and he was the father of those who raised cattle. What does that mean? Well, cattle. You have to understand, this is in an era when coins were not printed just yet or minted just yet. Cattle was the commerce of that day. Cattle was the bargaining chip of that day. We would say livestock. A man's riches at this time was not in gold or in minted uh, currency. Man's currency was livestock. The more livestock you had, the richer you, you were. So here then, cattle is emblematic of man grasping for prosperity. Man going after currency and, 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 and you know, wealth, if you will. These are the things now we're beginning to grasp. Instead of the presence of God, we are now in culture. And you'll see... We're we grasping for the things of this culture. We're grasping for money. Jesus would call it mammon. Keep reading. Watch what happens. Uh, his brother's name was Jubal. And it says, Jubal was the father of all those who play um, the lyre and the pipe. Let's just say instruments. Okay? But really, what's going on here is entertainment. Entertainment. This is what man 
is grasping for. This is the generations immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve. And these are the things on their agenda. Number one, let's build cities. We built this city. Yeah, it already started a long time ago. Let's raise cattle. Become powerful in commerce and in wealth. Let's entertain ourselves. Look at the next one. Verse 22. Uh, Zillah gave birth to Tubal Cain. And he was now the forger of every cutting instrument of bronze and iron. So he was into metal works of bronze and iron, but really, bronze and iron was for what purpose? Weaponry. Unto what purpose? War. War. This is now the stuff man is grasping for. And there's one more. If you read a little bit, look at the little uh, description here in verse 23. And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Listen to my voice, O wives of Lamech, hearken to my speech. I killed a man, I have slain a man for wounding me, and even a young man for just striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech is to be avenged seventy-sevenfold. This is number six, justice. And what's the, what's the thing we're grasping for here? Self-preservation. You hurt me a little bit, I'll hurt you back seven times. That number seven is, is the principle of intensification. So here, you see, man is beginning to reach and grasp for the things that are still in play to this day. things that we are after? Well, what is your greatest enemy in the spiritual life? I submit to you, it's the building of cities. But what really is going on? It's your culture that is your greatest enemy between you and God. And when Jesus came into this world, the Jews were living in a culture, whether it's a secular culture or a religious culture, no matter what, that culture is, an, is, is, is antagonistic against the principle of being emptied. See, culture wants to fill itself and define itself. And even we live in a culture that is trying to define itself entirely apart from God. And all cultures of the ancient days, they went after other gods and they built cities for their own renown. That was what the Tower of Babel was all about. And we even have such an example in the book of Revelation where there are two cities, the city of Babylon and the city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. They are pictures of the cultures of man versus the culture of God. And I watch people, they want to go on with God but they still have a hand massively holding on to their culture. 
Jesus says, follow me, come. But no, no, let me first like do my thing and I'll get with you when I'm 60. Let me first seek my own kingdom. Let me first seek my own glory. Let me first do my own thing. Come to legacy? No, what degree will I get? That desire for a degree is your culture. That desire to finish your college at a certain time is your culture. That desire to first look out for me and control my life, that is grasping. No wonder you're going to struggle in your walk with God. God's principle is to give up, to relinquish, to kenosis, to empty. But man's principle, the satanic principle, is clutch, clutch, grab, grab, gain, gain, look out, look out. That's why we're so anxious, because we're like, did I grasp enough? That's why we're so in confusion, because like, did I get enough? When will I get enough? Who will supply? We're grasping. And your culture, and particularly there's a book written against this. It's the book of um, Colossians. Colossians portrays an ultimatum. Christ or your culture. Christ versus the affairs of this world. And where are the affairs of this world stronger but in the city? And already here in Genesis, the cities are built. Number two, what goes on to build the city? What do we need? We need wealth. And this is something man is grasping for. Man is going after. And here comes Jesus. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about what you will eat. Don't worry about what you will drink. Seek first my kingdom. Take a hold of God things, not wealth things. And he would tell stories like, it's so difficult for a rich man to enter into the kingdom. Why? Because he's so full of riches and his trust in riches and his glory because of riches and his place and status because riches is not wrong. But what it does to me is it builds me up and it's hard to take that off. And humble yourself and come lowly into the kingdom. It's because of wealth that, that, that many a minister, many a church derails really from the gospel. Prosperity. And I, I'm all for these things as long as they're tools for the building of God's house. If they're vehicles for the self, man, you will forfeit the presence of God. Follow with me. The next one that's in culture, is this thing that was already created here, instruments. Now, music is not wrong. I'm a rocker. Hey, love me some music. Love music. Uh, we all love entertainment, but here's what's happened. Ever since the beginning, man is grasping for more entertainment, more entertainment, occupy me, and man never learns to walk with God. So man's testimony is one of entertainment versus just God. And these are the things even in our culture we're grasping for. We are addicts to entertainment. Some time ago, we told even a few legacy students here, hey, uh, you have a problem with your uh, electronic device. Do you realize you, you're addicted? How dare you? What? One day I came into class and I, I told folks, hey, no more phones. You can call outside there. 
Don't want phones in here. That day we had a riot. Because the phone is an extension of my personality and the entertainment value that it gives and the enjoyment I can get, it has replaced a man just simply walking with God. And so these are the things we're grasping. The phone is not wrong. But what, is, what has happened is that I am grasping. And you'll see that the more you grasp, it, it never satisfies. You all know that? I'm teaching this principle from the Bible for you. Uh, entertainment. Oh, my goodness. So what we've done is, in, in, in order to propagate the gospel, we've even made the gospel an entertainment business. You cannot deny that. We're exactly like the Jews in Jesus' day coming to the temple with all the commerce and the wealth. We're exactly the same. Spirituality has become an entertainment industry. And these are the things we grasp for. No wonder we forfeit the presence of God at times. Again, music is not wrong, a movie is not wrong, or this or that. But the issue is in me. Is that my identity or my, let's say, joy or my value, etc., etc.? And lastly, uh, two more. Um, you see how they forged uh, through bronze and through iron, metallurgy, how weapons of war. And what is war? Grasping for territory, grasping for power. And then lastly, you hurt me, I'll hurt you back seven times. That whole spirit of vengeance is the, the, what we're grasping for. So all throughout the biblical record, these are the things now that man will pursue. And it's still with us to this day.